0: Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that the 20th century was a record in Germany, in Russia, in China, in Cambodia, and elsewhere, not only of remarkable stupidity, brutality, and violence, but of unparalleled brutality, stupidity, and violence. And each of the regimes, each of the regimes behind this remarkable decay of civilization had two features in common, two characteristics we should bear in mind. In the first place, the men guiding these regimes and their entourage did not believe for a moment there was any power higher than their own. And they acted on that assumption. And in the second place, in the mass murders they conducted, they were aided and supported by any number of crackpot scientific disciplines. That makes for a characteristic combination. In the case of the Nazis, the scientific disciplines were derived from biology, and especially from Darwinian biology. In 1937, having murdered 70,000 handicapped men, women, and children, the Nazis released a film. And on the background of the film, the narrator says in terms of solemn incomprehension, my goodness, we have sinned against the law of natural selection. The law of natural selection. What could that mean? We have sinned against the law of natural selection. The communists, of course, had an equally crackpot theory that they derived from Marxian economics. The two crack potteries joining in one deeply repugnant stream. As all of you know, atheism today is not simply the private doctrine of a handful of individuals; it's become a social movement. And as a social movement, it has been advanced chiefly by the scientific community, certainly in the United States, but to a large extent in Europe too. Uh, Some of this is adventitious. A few popular writers such as Richard Dawkins discovered that by writing books indicating that science has shown that God does not exist. Well, they could make a fortune. I'm very sorry I wasn't there to join them. I didn't think of it at the time. I'm quite sure that someone now is writing a book how margarine science shows that God does not exist. But the inevitable consequences of this degree of atheism within the scientific community has involved a deformation of scientific thought quite striking in its character and its extent. After all, the sciences, if we restrict our attention to the serious sciences, and those may be found in mathematics or in mathematical physics in no other place, then we must recognize that the serious sciences have nothing to say about the existence of God, either in their premises or in their conclusion. What a remarkable fact. People are writing books how physics shows that God does not exist, but physics has nothing to say about the existence of God. The aching questions that trouble the human imagination about which the sciences, when seriously considered, are resolutely silent, these remain just where they were. And the religious tradition, especially the Judeo-Christian religious tradition, has offered a coherent body of belief and doctrine by which they can be explained. Do we understand why the universe arose 14 million? No, we don't. Do we understand why it's there at all? No, we have no idea. Do we understand how life emerged on Earth? Not a prayer right now. Do we understand the complexity of life? We can't even begin to describe a living creature in anything resembling precise terms. Recent article in Science Digest, Cell Division Requires 4,000 Coordinated Proteins Acting Together. What a remarkable statement. What a wealth of information we possess about biology. What an abundant lack of understanding we have about living systems. Do we understand why the laws of nature are true? No, we have no idea. Do we understand the miracle of analytic continuation in physics when certain kinds of functions can be pushed forward into the future contrary to all experience? Do we understand why the universe remains stable from moment to moment? The medievals pondered this question, ladies and gentlemen, and they came to the conclusion, and I quote a medieval theologian, that God is everywhere conserving the world. What a remarkable declaration. Can we do without it? Can we do without it? Do we have an explanation for the continuity and stability of the universe? There is one paper that I know in the literature by Freeman Dyson that addresses the stability of matter. But beyond that, everything is enigmatic. How can we propose seriously and solemnly to rule out of court in advance a hypothesis that not only answers to the human heart in many respects, but that answers to genuine intellectual needs in other respects? When one sees the American scientific community like a herd of wildebeests, Trotting across a fruited plain, it's very reasonable to ask are they going someplace or are they fleeing from someplace? And I think the overwhelmingly obvious answer is they are fleeing. They are fleeing from an idea that they reject for a variety of reasons. Not only is the inquiry about atheism not necessary in terms of the history of social thought, it's not necessary in terms of the outlines of scientific thought, but there is a last question to be addressed, perhaps the most important for you and me. The cosmologist Joel Premack asked an interesting question. He asked, what compels the electron to follow the laws of nature? Good question, I don't know. But Heinrich Himmler, who had presided over the destruction of churches and synagogues throughout Europe and was the mastermind behind the extermination of the Jewish people, asked a very similar question in 1944. When confronted with the onerous treaty obligations the German state had adopted with respect to its own satraps, he asked, insouciantly, but pregnantly, after all, what compels us to keep our promises? Moral relativism is very often (coughs) derided as an unhappy consequence of atheism. I don't think moral relativism is a particularly deep issue, but I do think the issue. I do think the issue of what compels us to keep our promises is very relevant. I have in front of front of me rather a remarkable button. If you should press it, if you should press it, yours would be untold riches, and whatever else you desire. The only consequence to pressing it beyond your happiness is the death of an anonymous Chinese peasant. Who among us would you trust with this button? Let's face it. Academics throughout the Western world form a native conspiracy class. And they are very akin to a criminal class. They'll believe anything. And once they believe something, the conspiracy is held tenaciously. For for what were very good reasons, Darwinian theory was accepted in the academic world way before it entered public relations world, the world of the media, world of newspapers or television, and it was accepted because it was a form of power. It was an advantageous acquisition to be able to say, well, you guys out there in the Bible Belt don't understand a thing, but we understand life. Uh, Knowledge is power in the academic world, and that was a devastating acquisition, the more so since it allowed academics to participate in a cultural war against religion, a rival center of power. My interest in divine creation is, is uh, negligible, but I do have a, a scientific question to ask you. In fact, two scientific questions, the second logical. Uh, everyone familiar with the paleontological literature, every
1: significant paleontologist says that there are gaps in the fossil
0: record. Do you have a particular reason for
1: demurring? No, but there are gaps so in the fossil record, of course, because the fossil record's only been examined for about hundred years. I didn't there was an explanation
0: years. for the gaps. I asked whether you agree that the fossil record is full of gaps. Of course, it has gas. Okay, so the, to that extent, the evidence does not support Darwin's theory of evolution. No, that
1: is absolutely wrong. It because follows
0: as the night, the day.
1: Of course not. How could you have a cell, for example, ladies and gentlemen, uh, hundreds of millions of years old, that would leave a fossil record? It would disintegrate, it would quite literally I not be able to be found in the insist. fossil record
0: i never suggested that they may not be explanations of the gaps but the fact that the fossil record does not on its face
1: support Darwin's theory of evolution it does. is a fact it, no it does it's just you, your that question was does it prove everything yet and the answer is it doesn't prove anything yet and once again i say how many times do we have to find those intermediate fossils how many more steps in the progress I, from I, ancient horse to I modern horse do we have to show you
0: answer what would satisfy a scientifically respectable temperament you spurned it all i'm asking for is enlightenment on the significant point darwin's theory requires a continuous a multitude of continuous forms we do not see that in the fossil record in fact major transitions are utterly incomplete. Will you accept that as as an empirical fact?
1: You sound like a guy who is writing a story about baseball, comes in in the fourth inning and says, well, you know, I'm going to write about the fourth inning on. The first three innings didn't happen because I wasn't there to see them. The fact that we can't find every one of those intermediate fossils yet in 150... We can't find any of the major transitions.
0: As all of you know, Atheism today is not simply the private doctrine of a handful of individuals, it's become a social movement. And as a social movement, it has been advanced chiefly by the scientific community, certainly in the United States, but to a large extent in Europe too. Uh, Some of this is adventitious. A few popular writers, such as Richard Dawkins, discovered that by writing books indicating that science has shown that God does not exist, well, they could make a fortune. I'm very sorry I wasn't there to join him, I didn't think of it at the time. I'm quite sure that someone now is writing a book how margarine science shows that God does not exist. But the inevitable consequences of this degree of atheism within the scientific community has involved a deformation of scientific thought quite striking in its character and its extent. After all, the sciences, if we restrict our attention to the serious sciences, and those may be found in mathematics or in mathematical physics in no other place, then we must recognize that the serious sciences have nothing to say about the existence of God, either in their premises or in their conclusion, what a remarkable fact. People are writing books how physics shows that God does not exist, but physics has nothing to say about the existence of God. The aching questions that trouble the human imagination about which the sciences, when seriously considered, are resolutely silent, these remain just where they were. And the religious tradition, especially the Judeo-Christian religious tradition, has offered a coherent body of belief and doctrine by which they can be explained. Do we understand why the universe arose 14 million? No, we don't. Do we understand why it's there at all? No, we have no idea. Do we understand how life emerged on Earth? Not a prayer right now. Do we understand the complexity of life? We can't even begin to describe a living creature in anything resembling precise terms recent article in Science Digest, Cell Division requires 4,000 coordinated proteins acting together. What a remarkable statement. What a wealth of information we possess about biology. What an abundant lack of understanding we have about living systems. Do we understand why the laws of nature are true? No, we have no idea. Do we understand the miracle of analytic continuation in physics when certain kinds of functions can be pushed forward into the future contrary to all experience? Do we understand why the universe remains stable from moment to moment? The medievals pondered this question, ladies and gentlemen, and they came to the conclusion, and I quote a medieval theologian, that God is everywhere conserving the world. What a remarkable declaration. Can we do without it? Can we do without it? Do we have an explanation for the continuity and stability of the universe? There is one paper that I know in the literature by Freeman Dyson that addresses the stability of matter. But beyond that everything is enigmatic. How can we propose seriously and solemnly to rule out of court in advance a hypothesis that not only answers to the human heart in many respects but that answers to genuine intellectual needs in other respects. When one sees the American scientific community like a herd of wildebeests trotting across a fruited plain it's very reasonable to ask, are they going someplace or are they fleeing from someplace? And I think the overwhelmingly obvious answer is they are fleeing. They are fleeing from an idea that they reject for a variety of reasons. We're dealing with a collection of anecdotes, a, a certain point of view, a series of hunches. Um, I would say that the, the most outstanding, the salient points are first of all, the fossil record. Uh, which, is, which is simply mystifying. We can't make much sense of the fossil record. It does not sustain any kind of Darwinian prediction that can be intelligently derived from Darwinian theory, and it doesn't seem to sustain anything else, as far as I can see. It's, it's a, a perfectly mystifying record. That's one obvious point. I'm not talking just about the Cambrian explosion. I'm talking about everything that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the fossil record. You've given a very sonorous um description of change in the universe i'm wondering whether your your world view includes a scientific theory now, that well, would be recognizable by any physicist or a mathematician things change i entirely agree they do change is there something to darwinism beyond that
2: i've got a kind of feeling that this is the kind of question if i say yes you're going to catch me uh, of course that's why I uh, asked. <laughs> and, <laughs> and if i say no uh, you're going to catch me too that's uh, right of course, I, 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 uh, my worldview accepts scientific theories. My worldview accepts uh, f- theories of physics. But it where is the scientific of theory biological? of
0: biology that you're right. proposing to endorse?
2: Yes, where I, is the I, I think that Darwinism, Darwinism is a scientific theory. Uh, of course, I think And it the Mississippi has been used. is a
0: river, but where is the theory beyond having named it? I mean, I think we can say, as a, as a kind of general principle, where Darwinian computer theory simula- simulations work, they're not Darwinian. And when they don't work, what they, require, what they require is the addition of forward-looking memory, some capacity to store information about the future. This is simply missing from Darwinian theory. It's absent a concept. There's a hole where there should be something substantial. And it's not a, it's not a trivial hole. It's a very significant hole. There's the utter absence of laboratory evidence. I mean, random variation, natural selection, we should be able to stop manipulating organisms when we look at dogs, no matter how far back we go, it's dogs. When we look at bacteria, no matter what we do, they stay bugs. They don't change in their fundamental nature. There seems to be some sort of an inherent species limitation, and we have no good explanation for this in terms of Darwinian theory. We should have far more flexibility, far more plasticity under laboratory conditions than we actually do if Darwinian theory or anything like that were correct. What we see in nature, what we see in the laboratory, is very highly bounded variations, cyclic variation, as, for example, bin, um, uh, finch beaks in the Galap- uh, Galapagos Island. That's about all we see. Small variations. Why is that, if Darwinian theory is correct? These are evidentiary points that I think need to be stressed, need to be examined openly, honestly. And they never are, of course. Never are. The question isn't whether it is infantile, childish, narrow-minded, whether it's something that one one, uh, could not expect to see in sophisticated circles. Those are points in its favor. Surely we understand that. The question is, what portion of the truth resides in these claims? Uh, We have never been able in any way theoretically to examine the central Darwinian claim that natural selection and random variation can account for a great deal of complexity. If you look at the history of physics, for example, what did Newton do in the 17th century? He said, well, the planets are being attracted to the sun by a force. It's not any kind of force. It's an inverse square force. And then he went and showed that if you make that assumption, the result will be an orbit that conforms exactly to the observed orbit, say, of of the Earth or of Mars. It will be a conic section. And then he proved the converse, that if it's a conic section, the planets must be attracted to a central source by an inverse square law. There is nothing like that in biology, in Darwinian theory. A kind of a, a canonical demonstration that this mechanism, random variation, natural selection, is adequate to the generation of this level of complexity. From the point of view of the serious sciences, without that kind of a demonstration, one is completely adrift you have no idea whether the mechanism is adequate for its intended purposes Uh, i was very much influenced by uh, mathematical linguistics my great buddy marco schutzenberger was a a mathematician and uh, noam chomsky and schutzenberger were working together on the description of natural languages by uh, a formal mathematical method and i tried to apply exactly the same description of certain structures in the english grammar to what I then in 1973 understood about molecular biological systems. And what did I discover? That it was impossible, not just difficult, but impossible to use the simplest level of explanation, so-called finite state automata, where one thing happens after another, typical Darwinian progression, small incremental, continuous improvements in the structure of an organism. As soon as you tried to specify that very rigorously, you discovered, well, it doesn't work. It doesn't look good. It doesn't make sense. What you need is at least, and this was 1973, all this is, is uh, far in the past now, and I'm sure the methods have been um, improved, but I think the conclusion is sound. You need at least what's called a push-down storage automata. You need some forward-looking memory. Let me give you a simple example. You take the English sentence. The old man came. And you can say that sentence is made by first fishing the word the from a vat, And that word determines the next one. It can be old, sprightly, courteous, ancient, whatever. But it determines the next word. And then the the third word, man, is determined by the second word. And the verb at the end is determined by the third word. Very simple system. It's a very Darwinian system. You can imagine Darwinian evolution producing the sentence, the old man came. turns out English doesn't work that way. And no other natural language does either. For example, the old man who had snorted The roses in the hall came. Now listen to the balance of that sentence. The old man, comma, who had snorted the roses in the hall, comma, came. There is no immediate dependence. When you get to the verb, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the sentence and keep that in memory before you'll understand what the sentence says. That can't be produced by a Darwinian mechanism or a finite state automata. And the great work in this field was done by Noam Chomsky as early as 1958 or 59. You turn to the serious sciences, you turn to general relativity or quantum mechanics. I can program a computer with the equations of general relativity or with the equations of quantum mechanics, and I can say, all right, what are the consequences? I can actually see the consequences uh, emerge in a simulation. We can't do any of this in biology. And that, that should, should prompt any reasonable person to ask, why not? If this is such a simple mechanism easily be programmed on a computer how come we can't set up a computer and create something of biological like complexity how come we cannot see the unfolding of an evolutionary process the way we can see the unfolding of an evolutionary process in physics it's a very serious question i've looked at all the genetic algorithms i'm trying to write a genetic algorithm myself and uh, and the sheer fact is uh, without a tremendous amount of very special manipulation and ad hoc constraints The computer is not going to generate anything realistic if it uses Darwinian mechanisms, and it will generate something realistic only if it doesn't use Darwinian mechanisms. This is an important point. Um, Fifty years after the computer revolution began, we have a splendid tool for assessing the the intelligibility and viability of Darwinian theory. And everything that we know, everything that we know, I think this is the uniform experience of anyone working in genetic algorithms, indicates These mechanisms will not work. They will not work for their intended purposes. Well, you need a special scale to rank the multiverse, the scale of the preposterous. (laughs) If the doctrine that uh, we all have parents who were ducks comes in at 100, the multiverse comes in at slightly more. (laughs) It is one of those strange phenomena in the history of thought. I mean, you see the most intelligent people on the planet. And that's sincerely meant these guys are doing quantum cosmology. They're smart. Very smart. Very smart. smart. Nonetheless, like um, a herd of individuals, they all are instinctively moving toward the same conclusion, which involves embracing any doctrine, hypothesis, or belief other than the most obvious one. It's a remarkable feat. Not of indoctrination. Not of indoctrination. Nobody is forcing these guys to do that but of uh, compliance to a party line. And the party line is, God forbid, we should mention anything except a hypothesis that does not invoke a designer or some form of supreme intelligence or some transcendental entity, anything except the obvious one. And they are reacting this way because they've been properly chastened. You know, when the Big Bang hypothesis became more than a hypothesis, when it became part of the settled body of theoretical physics, <clears throat> a great many physicists said, you know, the universe came into existence 15 billion years ago. It sort of erupted into existence from nothing. And some of the physicists with more than a nodding literary acquaintance with the great texts of Western history said, you know, I've heard that before. <laughs> Can't place it, but it's got that ring in the beginning And they began talking amongst themselves (laughs) and one of the physicists said to the other, you know, that's something that was written a long time ago, not only in one place, but in every single serious creedal system, there is reference to uh, the event by which the universe was constructed. And it's remarkably similar to what modern physics shows. That was too much for the community of physicists. It was really an indignity. First of all, that a lot of dopey theologians may have anticipated the Big Bang. What an outrage. Chutzpah, as we say in Greek. <laughs> that couldn't be. ant D. But in the second place, it conflicted with everything the community, the scientific community in the West took to be their prerogative. They would decide what the physical world looks like. They would answer all questions. To the scientists would repair all inquiring intellects. And anybody who didn't like it, well, just too bad. And here is a conclusion that um, didn't seem quite agreeable. So an incredible amount of effort has been devoted, say, since 1971, 1972. How many years is that? 38, Uh, 37, something, yeah. I don't do that kind of math. (laughs) (laughs) It's
1: okay, neither did Einstein.
0: (laughs) We're brain workers. We leave that to other people. (laughs) An incredible amount of work has been devoted to rejecting this palpable and obvious conclusion. Well, if you find the existence of the universe a remarkable mystery, some, of the, some sense of that mystery can be dispelled if you say to yourself, eh, it's not just one universe. There are all sorts of universes lying around out there, loitering, as it, will, as it were. And there's nothing mysterious about our universe because any property that we find uh, desperately enigmatic about the world in which we live is sure to arise by chance just so long as we have sufficiently many universes to make the play of the dice agreeable. Hence the hypothesis that we live not in the universe, but in one universe, and that there are indefinitely many other universes out there. And that principle, the doctrine of the multiverse, multi-universe, goes along with a number of other nonsensical doctrines, the anthropic cosmological principle, for example. And this is not the time, I think, to, to go on an extended exploration of the anthropic cosmological principle, nor the doctrine of the multiverse. My point is otherwise. I think you have a genuine example in the flight of the community of physicists from any confrontation with the obvious to a variety of metaphysical speculations that strain credulity of a a relatively familiar phenomenon in the history of thought that is party line orthodoxy. We've seen it with Marxism, we certainly saw it with Freudianism, and it continues to this day within the sciences. Roughly,
3: what percentage of Darwinian theory do you consider bogus as opposed to supported by God's,
0: uh, the book of God's works? Let, let's, let's separate the, the, the conjunction in two parts. What part of Darwinian theory do I regard as bogus in terms of a percentage? Yeah. hundred percent.
4: So then you find
3: nothing in the Darwinian theory that is supported by the book of God's works? Nah.
1: We all know we should give to charity, but how many of us really do? And who is it that tends to give? Fox News contributor Jeff Birnbaum talked with Arthur Brooks, director of the Nonprofit Studies Program at Syracuse University and author of a book on the subject of giving.
3: Arthur Brooks, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Your book, Who Really Cares?, is about the charity divide and who gives and who really doesn't give.
2: Are we uh, giving people is America very charitable as a as a country, we're unbelievably generous. It is there's there's no comparison between Americans and people from any other countries. If you look at the just the evidence on charitable giving, the data, you find that Americans give more dollars than people from any other country. Americans give seven times more dollars per year than the average German, fourteen times more than the average Italians, and that's not because of income and it's not because of taxes. It's a true cultural difference. Right. A quarter trillion dollars a year of charity uh, by Americans. That's right. Now that's actually more. More than the whole national income of Sweden or Denmark or Norway—that's how much we give. Now, uh, your book is, a, is telling us who gives and who doesn't. One of the very interesting
3: conclusions is that people who go to worship once a week are the most
2: generous people. Is that—is there a connection between charity and religion? Oh yeah. I mean, as, as a matter of fact, if I can ask you one question that will predict better than any other whether or not you're giving to charity and volunteering your time, it's going to be about your religious participation. If you attend a house of worship on any Kind on of a regular basis you're about 25 percentage points more likely to be giving than if you don't get than if you don't go to church and you'd imagine that people have the most money will give the most in charity but you say it's not so? No, it's not. Well, I mean, America's wealthy people are truly generous, and, and compared to the wealthy people from other countries, there's no comparison. Once again, so we have nothing to be ashamed of from our wealthy communities. But when you look at the percentage of the income that people give away, it's the working poor, the, the truly generous Americans, they give far and away the most in our society. We can all learn a charity lesson from America's working poor. Wait, wait.
3: Let me understand this. I mean, people who make less money give more as a percentage of their income than people who make a
2: lot more money. Exactly right. That's a surprising truth, actually. It's one of the things that we find, is that the working poor give the most, the rich give the second most, and the middle class give the least in America today. Um, you point out that there are some 85 million American families that
3: do give to uh, to charities, to nonprofit organizations, and some 30 million don't give anything at all. That's right. Could you break that down for us a little bit? Who gives
2: and who doesn't? Is well, there a political component? There is a political component. It is primarily a religious component and a component that, that it has to do with people and how they view the, the, what the government is supposed to be paying for. So, for example, if we find that somebody believes that the government should be doing more to equalize incomes in our society, the chances are they're going to give a lot less than somebody who disagrees with that statement. And that has a lot to do with politics these days. Religion has a lot to do with politics as well. So we find, for example, that on average, conservative families give more dollars to charity than liberal families, in spite of, according to some data, making slightly less income. But it has more to do with religion and attitudes about government than anything else.
3: At least uh, the self-image of uh, people who are liberal, politically speaking, is that they are the compassionate ones. Are you saying that it's actually compassionate conservatives who,
2: at least when you look at their charitable giving, are the people who are more generous? Well, they they give more to charity. Who's more compassionate? Well, there are lots of ways to be compassionate, but one of the things that we find is people who take the decision into their own hands to give are disproportionately conservative in America today, and that does, in fact, go against the stereotype that those who care the most for the needy are the people on the left. We saw campaign signs in my town that said, Bush must go. Mm-hmm. Human need, not corporate greed. That was the most common campaign sign before the 2004 election, which in a nutshell said the right's greedy and venal, the left is really compassionate, but the data on charitable giving tell the opposite story. That's that's, uh, fascinating. Um, You're not saying, I just want to be
3: sure, that Democrats are sort of heartless people and Republicans are much more
2: uh, uh, giving sorts of people. Oh my goodness, no. One of the things that we find is that religious liberals are every bit as generous as religious conservatives. There are just fewer of them. Um, What about billionaires
3: are billionaires uh, somehow less charitable than, uh, than the, the working
2: poor? Well, it depends on how you measure it. Mm-hmm. If you take billionaires and you look at the percentage of their income that they give away, they in fact are less charitable than America's working poor. When you look in total dollars, of course, they're paying for most of the services that we, that we enjoy in the nonprofit economy. So it all depends on how you measure it. Are the people who donate a disproportionate amount of, of their money, do they tend to be better people as well? Well, it depends, on, once again, on what, what you think a good person is really all about. But the interesting thing is that people who donate formally, their time and the money, are the same people who are engaging in the smallest ethical acts and compassionate acts towards others. So, for example, people who give, about 7 in 10 will give back change they mistakenly get from a cashier. If people who don't give to charity, only 3 in 10 give the money back. So you decide who's the better person. A wonderful, a wonderful message for this holiday season. Arthur Brooks, author of
3: Who Really Cares? Thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
4: So my name is Scott Bornstein and I am a pediatric oncologist and I take care of children, teenagers and young adults with cancer. I could not do my job without the volunteers who donate their blood and their platelets for our patients. The reasons why platelets are so important for cancer patients is that a lot of the treatments we use to treat cancer can have side effects, and one of the side effects is, is it affects your body's ability to make normal blood cells. And so after you get certain types of chemotherapy, your body can't make platelets and so your platelet count falls and it makes you more likely to bleed and so one of the ways that we help and support our patients that get intensive chemotherapy is we have to give them platelet transfusions i just want to thank everybody who donates their blood to help our patients we could not uh, treat our patients without you and you have my heartfelt gratitude